Hello and welcome back for another episode of the Northern Agenda podcast, politics stories about the North and from the North. I'm Rob Parsons, Northern Agenda editor for Reach, which publishes Newcastle Chronicle and Lanx Live, amongst other regional titles. I write about politics in the North of England every day. And if you haven't already, you can sign up to the Northern Agenda newsletter, a daily digest of stories and analysis from across our region. This week, I've been talking to Richard Holden, the Conservative MP for North West Durham, but also Rhodes Minister, so is ideally placed to tell us what the government is doing to ensure a thriving system of local buses in the North. I've been talking to him about the new electric buses coming to our region, Andy Burnham's franchising plans in Greater Manchester, and what he makes of the controversial concept of 15-minute cities. First, though, While the pundits in Westminster have been gripped by the huge cache of leaked WhatsApp messages from Matt Hancock and Rishi Sunak's efforts to finally get Brexit done, there's been plenty going on in Northern politics, which might not have had quite so much attention. So let's pick over a few of the stories that have gone under the radar with the help of Tom Lees, who is Managing Director of Bradshaw Advisory, a public affairs and economics consultancy firm with a headquarters in Manchester. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Rob. Very nice to have you on. Now, there's a few stories that we've been discussing that we could talk about. The first one is one that we've done quite a lot on in the Northern Agenda, and it takes us to Teesside and concerns something called Mayoral Development Corporations. Now, what, what are they, people might be wondering? They're new bodies created with the specific intention of regenerating specific areas of the country which are in need of attention. They have a wide range of powers to acquire and develop land, uh, and they already exist in places like Stockport in Greater Manchester and Redcar on Teesside. Middlesbrough is an area which I think definitely needs some help regenerating its town centre. Vacancies are on the rise and it's at the wrong end of lots of league tables. But in the last few days, Labour councillors have voted against a corporation being created because they were concerned about who was going to be on the board and the fact that powers and buildings currently in the hands of Middlesbrough Council would be passed over to this body without necessarily much scrutiny about how it was going to work. But it turns out the scheme, which is backed by Tees Valley Mayor Ben Houchin, is going to go ahead anyway, and it's prompted a big old row on social media. Now, you've had quite a few years, haven't you, working for a construction consultancy firm earlier in your career. I'm interested in, in what you think about this whole story. Do you think areas like Middlesbrough need extra help regenerating their town centres is, is, and is, is this the right way to go about it? I think there's lots of areas in the north that need extra help regenerating town centres because uh, patterns and shopping habit, habits have changed over the last couple of decades. Uh, we've had the impact of the pandemic, online shopping, uh, Amazon, how people choose to spend their money has changed quite radically. And uh, there's a long list of towns and uh, uh, small cities around the UK and in the north that need need extra help getting there. You said that uh, mayoral development corporations are new. Uh, they're, not, they're not especially new, actually. They've, they've been around for over a decade. Uh, you know, one was designated around the Olympic Park in London uh, in 2012. Uh, there's one in Stockport. There's quite a few all around the country. So they're not, not a really new thing. Um, do I think that they're a silver bullet to transform places? No. Do I think that they're... Uh, can be one useful tool to try and help towns uh, get back on their feet, develop a clear, coherent offer and attract investment in. Yes. Um, 
but they're, they're, they're part of a package of different ideas and different interventions. Um, I think in, in Tees uh, Valley, I, I'm not quite sure what happened up there. You, when you look at the vote that took place that you mentioned, I think it was only, um, it was only about 50, 50% turnout of councillors. Which seems strange because it's such a big issue, isn't it? And yeah, only a relatively small number of councillors decided to vote on it. Yeah, I, I haven't quite worked out why, why that's happened. So I'm, I'm not sure whether that was, you know, I've seen some reports saying it was a scheduling issue because it was done on a Friday evening in half terms, so people were on holiday. But I'm, not, I'm not quite sure what happened, but this is, you know, there's been consultations on creating a development corporation up there uh, for quite a few months. It's not a new idea, so it shouldn't be a surprise to people. Um, and you, you never, in different areas of the country, you get cross-party support generally for these development corporations. You have some over on this side of the Pennines uh, around Greater Manchester, which have Labour leadership and the sort of uh, initiated by Andy Burnham. Uh, and then obviously you've got the one in Tees that's trying to be initiated by uh, Ben Houch and the, the Conservative. And normally you get you get a lot more cross-party support. So I'm, I'm not sure whether it's been driven by um, party, party, party politics issues uh, and thinking that uh, you know, it, it could be a good hill to try and have a fight on. Um, but normally when you set up these corporations, you create a board. You usually have the leaders or, or mayors of different constituents or authorities on them as, long, as well as business leaders. And so the local authorities are usually represented in some way on them, just like, just like combined authorities have representations from local leaders and other constituent parts. So I'm not quite sure what's going on. But to me, development corporations, as I said, are a useful tool that can be used. I'm not quite sure what's driving the objections. No, well, I think the the sense I get is that Labour are concerned about all the council assets that are currently owned by Middlesbrough Council being handed over to this mayoral development corporation. And with the uh, and I guess which means that it'll be harder to scrutinise what happens to them. I think they're concerned about the sort of governance of how this corporation would work. As, as you say, it's driven by Ben Houch and the Tees Valley uh, Conservative mayor and uh, Andy Preston, who is the independent mayor of Middlesbrough. And there's various people on on this board. But I think I mean, I think it speaks to a sort of wider, quite divisive nature of politics in that part of uh, that part of the world like the Teesside and Tees Valley are an area of the north which where uh, you know a few long-held Labour seats went Conservative in 2019 and because they've got a Conservative mayor there who is sort of the darling of the of Westminster like Ben Houchin is held in very high regard by uh, you know the Conservative government like I think what he does is it has a higher profile and I think you know the stakes are, are quite high there because as Ben Houchin has said to us in uh, in uh, in on this podcast before the Tees Valley is probably one of the few places where you could actually show tangible evidence that of leveling up happening and so if it's not succeeding if leveling up isn't succeeding on Teesside it is perhaps not succeeding anywhere which I, I guess is why the arguments about the success of particular schemes there are so much more heightened than they are in other parts of the country. Yeah, yeah I think um, I think Ben Houchin's definitely sort of a, post, a government poster boy for the levelling up cause, uh, which obviously then makes you a target for the opposition. So I'm not sure what what, what share is 
what share of the uh, uh, sort of resistance to the idea is driven by the assets that you mentioned uh, being transferred to the development corporation and how much is actually being de- developed, uh, driven by politics. I mean, what I thought was interesting is within the Labour councillors who did turn up uh, the other night and voted on it, I think there were 16 against and 12 in favour. So the Labour Party itself seems to be split on the issue. And the transfer of assets is sometimes you've got to come together uh, for the greater good of an area and by packaging assets uh, from individual sites together as, as as part of a larger offering to the private sector or a larger offering for transformation, you can have a higher impact. Yeah, well, I guess we will see how that one uh, develops. Um, Another story that caught my eye this week concerns Lee Anderson. So he is the MP for Ashfield in North Nottinghamshire, which is not technically the North. I think uh, we we would agree, but it's a sort of ex-mining area that has quite a lot in common with large parts of the North. And Lee Anderson is deputy chairman of the Conservative Party, and he has made headlines for his views on things like the death penalty, taking the knee, sort of cultural hot button topics. And he's, he's, he's been at it again this week. He's organised a Westminster Hall debate uh, in which he he was talking about food poverty and, uh, and tackling that. And he was basically claiming that people are abusing food banks and using them as a, a weekly shop. And that essentially there's a lot of people using food banks who don't really need to use them. And that... Um, Back in his day, when he was growing up in the 1970s in Nottinghamshire, he his dad had an, an allotment, and uh, if they needed food, they would just go to the allotment, and why don't people just do something similar to that? Which, as you can imagine, prompted quite a lot of opposition from MPs, the likes of uh, Ian Byrne in Liverpool. What do you think of Lee Anderson as a, uh, as a politician? I think he's certainly a character. Um, you know, one of the things the public complains about is so oh, politicians also dull and boring and similar. But he's definitely a character. He's definitely got some personality about him, and he definitely knows how to grab a headline. Um, on this issue that he's talked about, I, I actually actually suspect most of the most of the public will probably have some sympathy with what he said. I think that um, you know, obviously, the there are lots of people who are struggling. Uh, genuinely struggling to make ends meet uh, and really need to rely on food banks. But with any system that you have set up, there will be a proportion of people who abuse it and take advantage of it. It, it, It's how you, and obviously it's hard to discern the balance between the two. I think one of the things that I've sort of observed and thought about is that over, over the last few decades in particular, what people see as essentials to their life and essential to their daily living has changed a lot. So when, when Lee's talking about he, he, how he was growing up and uh, his dad's allotment and all that kind of thing, um, you know, there were nowadays people consider it's essential to have a mobile phone. It's essential to have broadband and internet access. You know, some people, some people nowadays consider it essential to have Netflix subscription. So, so there's a lot more choice uh, in terms of how people can spend their money there's also a shift in terms of what people judge as being essential. And there's a lot more that people can, um, you know, sort of to live a sort of fully integrated life in the part of society that they feel they need to have. Um, so I, I suspect a lot of people would have some sympathy with that, though. I always, I always remember my, 
uh, my own neighbours growing up in Halifax with their uh, allotment in their garden that they'd had since World War Two. They were they were late in their nineties, um, and they would often moan in similar ways about how they used to uh, make ends meet better and repair repair things, make do second hand, uh, and and I think you know, part of that potentially is around financial education in schools. Because, you know, Martin Martin Lewis, a money saving expert, he's done endless campaigning on financial education and literacy in, in schools. But generally across the piece, there's quite poor education in terms of budgeting, uh, you know, how to actually, uh, different savings products, how to actually run uh, your financial affairs. Uh, so perhaps that, that's a gap that needs filling and could help with some of some of these issues. Because proportionally, people today are spending far less on food than they were 100 years ago. You used to take up a far larger share of people's incomes than today. Does that not just reflect the change, the way society has changed? Like you mentioned, you know, broadband as something that people now see deep deemed to be essential. I mean, that, surely that is, that, is, that is valid that people consider broadband to be essential these days. It's not like a, a luxury item really, is it, anymore because of the way that we live our, live our lives these days. No, I agree. I agree with you. Um, but, you know, the point I was sort of trying to make is that there are some extra essential items that are perhaps putting pressure on budgets uh, of households. That means that it's, it's, it's harder to directly to compare to, uh, you know, the back in my day kind of argument that Lee's putting forward. No, sure. Uh, I understand that. Now, I, I mean, it's interesting, the stuff that he's talking about and the kind of topics that he has been in the headlines for discussing, uh, you, you, I guess you describe them, you could describe them as sort of culture wars kind of issues. Uh, you know, it's not economics or, you know, uh, sort of policy driven stuff, a, a lot of it. And, and I, it seems to me that we're hearing quite a lot of this now from Northern Conservative MPs or Conservative MPs in in, in general, uh, we had Nick Fletcher on the podcast the other day talking about fifteen minute cities and his concerns that you know uh, measures to cut uh, traffic were uh, attacking our freedoms. And Scott Benson, he's the Blackpool South MP, complaining that a, a local fire and rescue service was uh, w- wouldn't uh, didn't want to describe people as firemen anymore. It had to be firefighters. Uh, which again prompted a bit, a bit of a reaction. I mean, is it, you, you follow the polls quite, quite closely with, with, with Bradshaw Advisory. What, what is? Are we going to be hearing a lot more of this kind of this kind of culture war stuff in the next eighteen months in the run up to the next election? I mean, it, I mean, in politics, you talk about wedge issues, right? Is it, the US lingo for things? Certain issues you pick that uh, divide people, um, and I think these issues do divide people. Um, into sort of the work and the anti-work, if we call it that. But I'm not, I'm not sure how, how, it, how strongly it really resonates in terms of people's everyday lives and everyday voting sort of practices. I mean, when you've got, you know, when you've got uh, Russia invading Ukraine, uh, China likely to become, you know, overtake the US in the next decade or so in terms of economic size. When we're sort of banging on and wittering about whether we're calling people firemen or firefighters and these kind of issues is all a little bit at the pathetic end of the scale, to be honest with you. And there's far more important things going on, like the fact that people in the North are dying sometimes a decade or more earlier than people in the South. 
uh, how do we actually create more jobs and opportunity in the north? How do we how do we attract more private investment into the north to change people's lives? You know, talking about firemen and and uh, this kind of stuff, he's not fundamentally going to change the pe- future of people's lives. No. Well, let's 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 segue nicely from that into uh, something you just mentioned: getting more private investment into the north, creating jobs. There's a thing called the UK National Infrastructure Bank, which I think Rishi Sunak announced as Chancellor in an autumn statement. I think it was perhaps in 2021. Uh, and the, the idea is that it will invest private sector finance into projects that help meet the government's climate targets and levelling up commitment to tackle regional inequality. And crucially, its headquarters is in Leeds. Um, you, you've been following it quite closely sort of how, how it's been getting on since then. What, what's what's currently going on with the uh, UK Infrastructure Bank? I mean, it's uh, they, they've just cut the ribbon on a new office in Leeds, uh, which is a good thing. Um, Leeds in particular seems to be getting more of a concentration of uh, these types of quasi-government bodies going there. Uh, Financial Conduct Authority, the Bank of England setting up a regional hub, um, along with the UK Infrastructure Bank, which which could only be a good thing for the Leeds economy. Um, in terms of the bank itself, you know, one of the main issues that when you speak to investors and businesses and local authorities around the UK is access to finance and access to capital. So, so the premise of the bank you know, is absolutely right. Twenty two billion pounds to spend uh, taxpayers money trying to get projects over the line fund projects that would be hard to get funding from the private sector for. But with a bit of um, public intervention, you can help crowd in some of that private funding. So, I mean, it, it's not it's not a really old organisation. It's only been going uh, just some 18 months, a couple of years at the most. And it's done 10 deals at the moment. Um, but obviously, infrastructure takes a long time to plan, a long time to deliver, and a long time to think about. So I suppose the real test is what it does over the next five to ten years, not what it does over its first one to two years. Yeah, and I, I did notice uh, not that long ago, the Public Accounts Committee, which is a committee of Westminster MPs, uh, was quite critical about the way that the bank was run in the first few months. It said it was created in a rush at ministers' insistence, so had weak financial governance uh, and that it was well behind on recruitment plans. Uh, but as you say, it, it, it's, it's not so much about what happens at the start, it's what uh, whether it makes a material difference in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, so we, we can come back to it, come back to it in a decade and see how, it, see how it's built. And what, and what, I mean, one of the things as well I'd say is that th- there's a huge risk uh, and loss opportunities in going too slowly. So it's very novel to have a criticism the other way around about doing something too quickly. Because you know, if, if you look at HS2, if you look at um, uh, the plans to do Northern Paris Rail, the plans to even, you know, Heathrow's had plans to do a third runway for going back sort of 40 years. You know, we're really held back in this country by how glacially slow it is to do anything. So it's novel to have a criticism the other direction that it was too fast. Um, and, you know, there are the really serious people at the UK Infrastructure Bank. You know, the CEO of it is John Flint, who is the CEO of HSBC. It's chaired by Chris uh, Gregg, who is the CEO of Land Securities. 
and um, he was also at Goldman Sachs and he was at Barclays Bank. And these are really serious people who really know the financial world inside out. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, should we finish on a slightly lighter uh, a lighter story that uh, that I, I saw in the news, and it, it, it's a it's a funny one. So there's a, a, a lady called Katie McCloskey who lives in the Willow in Merseyside, and she uh, she went viral on uh, social media after discovering a, a nearly thirty year old manual she made at the age of nine that detailed all the ways to find uh, a lovely man. In her words, uh, she shared it on social media, and she she got a huge amount of attention over it, and she said it validated her inner child. It was called A Book of Lovely Men on Holiday, which she crafted as a child, offering guidance on all the ways to find the right man while abroad, which had such gems as encouraging readers to stay steer clear of stupid men who eat tomatoes and opt for those with lovely eyes and a smile, which I think is good you know, good, good advice generally that you could still, still live by. Lots of, lots, of, lots of vitamin C in tomatoes, you know, that's a plus for the health. Absolutely, yeah. It's, you know, it's it's got all got good sound uh, grounding to it, hasn't it? So I I was wondering what uh, if you ha- had any childhood memories that you might that that might prompt a reaction if you were to reveal them on social media now. I'll tell you I'll tell you mine, which is uh, as a teenager, I uh, wrote a I say wrote a poem. I wrote a parody poem of John Betjeman's classic poem Slough. Uh, which was about the tabloid press and the evils of the tabloids in the 1990s. And uh, you remember that, I think the poem goes, come friendly bombs and fall on slough, it isn't fit for humans now. And my poem went, come friendly bombs, fall on the sun, the mirror and the star. What fun. I, I can't remember how the rest of it goes, but I, I don't think it was a classic, <laughs> classic piece of verse. But uh, obviously I've since gone on to work. In journalism, you obviously uh, you obviously had a, uh, a literary gift uh, at an early age, Rob. Yeah, I, perhaps I should get back to the poetry writing. It's uh, you know you never you never lose it, do you? So, what would do, do, are there any? Can you dredge up any childhood memories that that you might find favour on social media these days? <laughs> I don't know whether it would find favour or criticism. But one of the really strong uh, childhood memories I have is um, <coughs> I had a pet hamster. Uh, I was probably seven or eight. I think it was the first proper pet I had. And uh, it was called Sarah, uh, a sort of unusual name for a hamster, I think. And it was Christmas time, you know, the, the snow was falling, the the tree was up. I think we'd gone out for a family Christmas meal. And uh, driving back, came came back to my room where the hamster lived, and it was stone cold dead. Dead, dead, dead as a dodo. Oh, no. And uh, you know, I was, I was very upset by this, uh, as you as you might imagine. So you know, never never having having gone through the sort of grieving process before, I thought, well, what do you do when what do you do when somebody dies? So I I made my parents uh, design a sort of order of service. Uh, we we developed a coffin out of an old uh, shoebox, and we had it in the pouring sort of sleet and rain in our garden. Uh, we we dug a grave for Paul Sarah, uh, and my dad conducted a, a dignified service to lay the, the uh, special hamster to rest. So that that's one of the things that stands out in my memory. I can I could see if that were to happen now, and someone put it on social media, I could see 
local websites picking that up as a, as a story. I think that would uh, that you know, that would I touch. I think they would probably, probably, probably have parts. a photo of me looking very sad with the coffin. I can imagine. Exactly, that's exactly what you'd what you'd have. I think that would that would go well. I can I, I can imagine. Well, uh, that's, well, well. Thank thank you, Tom Lees, for that uh, that heartfelt heartfelt memory from your childhood. And now let's uh, let's listen to our main guest today, Richard Holden. Improving transport links in our northern towns and cities and cleaning up the air we breathe are two of the big policy challenges of our age, and the government hopes its focus on zero emission battery allowances is a way of trying to tackle both these big issues at the same time. This week, the Roads Minister Richard Holden, an MP in North West Durham, announced a new multi-million pound funding package which will bring 34 of these new buses to the streets of West Yorkshire and York. It also means York will become one of the first bus depots in the UK outside London to run fully electric fleets. But it comes at a time when, as we heard from Labour's Louise Haig on last week's podcast, major questions remain about the viability of some of the bus services millions of people in the north rely on. So let's speak to Richard Holden now. Richard, welcome. Oh, delighted to be on with you. Thank you very much. So can you just explain a bit more about what's being announced uh, today and for people in West Yorkshire and York who are getting these new buses, what, what difference will they notice when they arrive in their, in their communities? Well, I think this is, a, this is a latest line of a massive uh, series of announcements the government's been making around uh, zero emission buses. Um, we've, we've got a, a big target of uh, around 4,000 across the entire UK. Uh, we're now at over th- almost 3,500 with this latest announcement. And uh, this announcement particularly for York and West Yorkshire combined authorities, means an, an extra £7.6 million going in, which will deliver another 34 uh, of these zero emission buses. Now, and, and as you said, York is going to be one of the first, uh, first places in the country to have a zero emission, total zero emission uh, bus depot as part of it. So it's a, it's a proper uh, substantial investment. But the, the key thing what I've been finding uh, since I became uh, local transport and roads minister a few months ago is that what people like to see is these zero emission buses uh, around because they've got all those extra extern- external uh, benefits on top of uh, that reliable bus service that we all are after and um, trying to deliver. And some of those are basically the journeys are quieter and smoother, uh, which is great. And that's largely because of the acceleration and the braking on the buses. We've all been on those old buses which used to judder to a stop or used to throw you back as it accelerated. Uh, the journeys are better. And that actually also improves things like the insurance, actually, and lowers the cost for the operators as well. In terms of maintenance, they're on the road more often um, because they have fewer moving parts due to their, the nature of the, the batteries, which means that you can actually reduce maintenance costs for them as well over the, uh, over the long term, but also increasing reliability for bus service users, which I know has been driving people absolutely bananas in my constituency and across the country uh, over the last um, few years. Uh, and then on uh, the, uh, and, I, and I had a bus meeting actually in concert uh, last week in my own constituency, uh, just to talk about some of these uh, issues of reliability and services, because uh, I, I know how important local networks are, yes, for uh, people uh, commuting, but also for those who are less able to get out and about, 
you know, elderly uh, people, people with uh, disabled children. Uh, you know, these are absolutely vital local services. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping with the, the these new buses, which should be cleaner, uh, more efficient, uh, less on the maintenance, more reliable uh, on one side, uh, plus the fact that obviously with the environmental benefits that they have, particularly for those sort of towns and cities, uh, they should really help encourage people to get back onto the network as well. That's interesting. So obviously it's First Bus, isn't it, who are going to be the recipients of this investment. And obviously it's interesting that it's them getting it because there are, across the north, looking at the different patches that I cover, there are different communities that are worried that the company First Bus is going to be cutting vital services. I think there's a deadline later this week to announce sort of what they're doing. And just in Leeds, for example, it's being reported that six routes are going to be axed in the coming days you know wider concern about services disappearing i mean i mean are you, are you expecting lots of bus bus operators like first to cut routes in the way that is apparently happening in, in Leeds? Is that a widespread thing that you, you, you are expecting to see? Well, look, I, I hope not. I and mean, we've provided so much extra support, over £2 billion since the start of the pandemic for bus networks across the country. And then since the start of the year, uh, the other thing we've been doing, in addition to that bus recovery grant money, which is now extended to the end of June, and we've also been providing the uh, Get Around for £2 uh, bus fare, uh, which is also there to try and help drive ridership. Now, in some parts of the country, we've seen uh, ridership uh, really decline, particularly amongst uh, older groups. And what I would say to all of your uh, podcast listeners is, uh, please, um, you know, one of the things that we need to do is just reassure people that getting out and about on a bus is uh, not only uh, safe, but, you know, it's got so many external benefits, like uh, people being able to see friends and family, tackling loneliness, issues like that. There's a major benefit for town centres as well. So really want to encourage people to get back on the uh, bus network. Uh, yes, the, which is why we're trying to do that with the paid passengers with the Get Around for £2 scheme, but also more broadly on the um, with trying to get those people who already have free bus passes just to use them more as well. So there's, because it's only with people using the routes in the long term that we can uh, provide, uh, we can ensure that they're uh, provided. There's no. I don't want to be providing taxpayer subsidy for empty buses driving around the country. What I want to see is a thriving bus network with people using them and people on them. We've obviously had to provide a lot of support during the pandemic, um, and then since then in that bus recovery grants. And there's another, uh, you know, eighty million pounds or so going in over the next three months as well. So I hope that they uh, that the bus companies won't uh, uh, be cutting services because we are providing. Uh, that cash support from central government uh, to them in order to deliver services that people want. And how much longer do you think you can continue to sort of pump taxpayer money in to sort of keep some of these services afloat? Because as you say, you've got the the £2 uh, fares deal, which you've extended, I think, at a cost of £75 million or so, and then the the bus recovery grant, which I think you've extended – uh, to the tune of about eighty million, and obviously you've had to do this, the government, a few a few times now since yep. the pandemic, because in large parts of the country, passenger numbers haven't reached where they were pre-pandemic. I mean, this presumably is not something you can can or want to continue to do in the long term. I mean, that the announcement that the government made a week or two ago is that the last time you think that the government's going to dip its hand in its pocket in in this way, or could you have to potentially? 
bail the services out again in a few months' time. Well, well, what I want to see, and I think this is what we all want to see, is bus service number people usage recovering. That's the most important thing we can do, and that's why we introduced the two pound bus fare to try and drive that extra a demand for the network, get people thinking about buses in a different way, uh, particularly those who uh, already use them to use them more frequently. Um, and I think also one of the things I, I want to be doing, looking at over the next few months is how we can also encourage some of those people who do have free bus passes to use them more uh, as well because all of those things contribute uh, to the benefit of the bus network uh, across the country. Long term, we have to have a, a long term solution as well. Um, I, I, you know, I, we're, there are always discussions across government about that. Um, I think the, uh, you know, I've, I have meetings regularly on it, but it, what's clear to me is that you know, for a service to be maintained in the long term, uh, I need people to be using the bus network, uh, and and that's the that's the most important thing, because I, and I don't want to see us in a situation where uh, we you know we're, um, we're 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 forced to uh, reduce routes. Because at the end of the money, this isn't the government's money which goes into supporting the bus network. This is taxpayers' money from across the country, and if people are uh, are prepared to, I want I want to support services that people are using and are really essential to their lives in different parts of the country. We've seen some real success stories over the last few months. It's quite clear that the um, the, the uh, Get a Ramper for £2 scheme is really helping uh, some of those services, particularly the inter-town services or the ones to the coast. Um, I've seen people doing uh, special visits on them and, and tweeting about them and all that sort of thing. Um, I want to see services maintained, um, but we have to have it do it in a sustainable way which is also value for taxpayers as well um, we have also put in a lot of cash into for example the bsip funding for west yorkshire uh, there's some more uh, which will hopefully be announced in the coming weeks for the northeast which will be the biggest bsip scheme that's a bus service improvement plan and um, that's really enabling local authorities to do what we've just talked about actually the long-term planning uh, that's what that's where the long term is going to come from i think in the short term we've had to provide this extra support in the long term Though, uh, you know, I can't, I don't direct every single bus service or transport every single bus service from Whitehall. I want that to be a local authority led and a combined authority led. Um, And that's why we've been doing these bus service improvement plans. Um, It's looking, and the one for West Yorkshire's, you know, coming in over the next few months, we've got, and the one for the Northeast, uh, fingers crossed, we should be able to get it over the line as well in the near future as well. Well, That's good good to hear. Now, um, on on the subject of, uh, you know, who's directing the bus services. You'll, you'll be aware, I'm sure, that in Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham is going to be the first mayor outside London to take buses under public control. And it looks like other Labour mayors in Northern England are uh, hoping to join him at some point in doing that. Is that a development you'd encourage? Because obviously it's quite an expensive and legally contentious process, isn't it? Would you say other areas of the North would be following his lead? Is that the government's sort of policy on this one? Well, I think it's what we've done is established um, you can either go two options. One is the uh, franchising system and the other is the enhanced partnership. And I think what we all we can all agree on is that the fact that the network to date um, has not been responsive enough or listened to local people's needs enough. And that's why I want to get that better tie in uh, between local authorities and um, and the bus operators uh, across the country. That's what enhanced partnerships are designed to do. Now, if people want to go a stage further, that's totally up to them uh, with the uh, franchising arrangements. What that means is that uh, really the local authority, although it will, um, it basically will get private operators to run the routes, uh, they will have control of the fares 
and the fare box. Now, for local taxpayers, that's got ups. And, there are there are two sides to the coin on that one. Uh, one is that that it means that local taxpayers will bear the fare box risk, which is a, a not an insubstantial thing to do um, for, uh, for, uh, for 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 local authorities and for the combined authorities. On the other side, it means that they have much more control over when and where the services operate. But it is uh, it does put a lot of it, 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 so it's, uh, for some areas, it might be the right thing to do. For other areas, it might not be. Um, but I want to give that control and that democratic accountability of those decisions uh, to local people, which is, uh, which is why we've um, put forward the schemes in the northeast. Uh, BSIP, they're looking at doing an enhanced partnership model uh, where there will be more uh, control from the local authority, but without taking that fare box uh, risk. Um, Greater Manchester and Merseyside looking at a different model. Um, so it's it's going to be horses for courses, um, but what I want to do really it doesn't really matter the model to me. I just want bus services there for people uh, when they need them, and, and that's what really matters. I'm not too uh, I'm not too bothered about the governance uh, mechanism, but I do think, and I think it's been recognised across the board that more controls needed, either via the enhanced partnership or via. Uh, the franchising model. In Tees Valley, not far away from uh, your patch in Durham, um, Ben Houchen, the Tory mayor, is doing something uh, different again. He's decided to carry on with a scheme called Tees Flex, which is a sort of Uber-style on-demand bus service, which I think primarily serves rural areas. And again, that has been relatively costly. And I think because of the pandemic, hasn't had quite the passenger numbers that they'd hoped for. But I guess, you know, that that part of the, the North East has some quite similar characteristics to your uh, patch in, in Durham. I mean, is that scheme a sort of a more demand-led service? Uh, is that a bl- potentially a blueprint for other sort of more rural areas like yours in, in Durham? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Now, I think that demand-responsive buses definitely have a role to play, uh, particularly in rural areas. And Ben with Teesflex has been doing that in the more rural parts of Teesside as well. Uh, and so I think that's a, it's, it's an interesting scheme. I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, the, the pandemic basically meant that people couldn't travel. Uh, so um, he's, he's extended the scheme to see if it can work uh, you know, for another, I think it's a year or 18 months. Um, but that's that's the power of local mayors as well, right? You know, um, they have the control uh, over these things. Yes, of course, working with central government. But we've been doing a big uh, rural bus scheme across the country and other parts as well. Some of them seem to work really well. Uh, some of them work less well. Um, and we're, what, what I'm really keen, though, is that people learn from what works and what doesn't work in order to maintain a service in their areas. Um, this is particular. This looks, I would say, on the... Uh, on the demand responsive bus network, you know, people have had dial a ride and similar schemes uh, in different parts of the country for some time. Uh, but it, it's, it's all about how it's sold and how it's worked uh, locally and whether that, that demand is really there as well. So it'd be really interesting to see, um, uh, you know, uh, how Teesflex uh, does over the next uh, couple of years, because it's a, it's an important and interesting project. And I know that, that it has been quite popular in some areas, um, and it's and some and we've seen other parts of the country with similar schemes um, change them slightly and tweak them to make them better. And I'm sure there'll be lessons to learn as you can as you go through this uh, wherever you're looking at these schemes. Because it's uh, what what the key thing is about getting people is about mobility. It's about providing that access to jobs and services uh, that people need. And I know you know representing a semi rural constituency myself, um, one of the biggest challenges people face is just getting access to education and jobs. Um, and and that transport connectivity is crucial. 
Um, and and for, for some areas, that's going to be by demand responsive bus. For other areas, um, it'll be with those um, uh, the the uh, the fixed line bus services, and for other areas, it's going to be uh, with improved broader public transport, whether that's light rail in West Yorkshire uh, potentially, or, um, uh, or, uh, or 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 heavy rail in other parts of the country as well. Absolutely. Well, I'll just ask you one uh, final question, Rich, with your sort of a local transport and roads uh, portfolio hat on. There's a, a concept that you're probably aware of: 15 minute cities. Now, yes. there are a lot of areas of the north and nationwide which are introducing schemes like low traffic neighborhoods or measures to reduce the amount of traffic in certain congested roads quite controversial in some areas but the idea is to make it easier for cycling walking and buses and more widely there's this sort of concept of the 15 minute neighborhood where uh you know where you can get all your services you need close to where you live but it's become a bit of a sort of political hot potato and nick fletcher your fellow northern conservative he is concerned that the idea will take away our freedoms he was telling us about it on the podcast a couple of weeks ago i mean i'm wondering what does the government have a position on 15 minute cities and and these kind of schemes more more generally do you understand where people like nick fletcher are coming from yeah well so what i think is that uh, on all of these things what i what uh, the, the, the way I view it is some Labour local authorities uh, would like very much uh, to um, dictate to people where they can travel, when they can travel and when they can't travel. I, I take a slightly different view on public transport, which is why we've pushed the £2 to get around scheme. I want to pr- public transport to be a really good uh, alternative uh, to, uh, to, to the car. When it comes to individual areas choosing different schemes, there's a huge amount of a there's, there's a big row in Greater Manchester not that long ago about Andy Burnham's clean air zone. There's a big row going on uh, in London uh, with Sadiq Khan and Ulez now. Um, those are uh, but those decisions are rightly to be taken at a local level. Some areas will decide to do some things, other areas will decide to do other things. But my view is that. I want what I don't want to see is traffic congestion anywhere. What I don't want to do is go down the route that Labour have in Wales and try and ban all new road building. Uh, I don't think that works. I don't think it's actually environmentally friendly to have people stuck in traffic jams either. Um, but I think it's right that we provide that proper public transport alternative. Um, I don't want to dictate to people exactly how long they should be able to um, move outside their house. Um, you know, I live in a rural area where. Uh, my, lo- my my nearest uh, supermarket is more than a 15-minute drive away uh, from rural Weirdale. So uh, I think we need to be uh, sensible about this. But it's really up to local areas. And those local areas are rightly democratically accountable for the decisions they make. And if they go against the interests of local people uh, trying to pursue uh, their own uh, ideological agendas against the uh, what the local communities want, then they'll be held democratically accountable for those as well. It's horses for courses. I think it's um, it's right that we um, we, we we pursue we, we give local people the chance to decide uh, what they want in their areas, and that their local representatives uh, are accountable for those decisions. Richard Holden, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast, and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. 
See you next week. Bye-bye.